joining us for our latest TRADOC Leader Professional Development Webinar. I'm Sarah Hauk, a Public Affairs Specialist for the TRADOC Communication Directorate, and I'll be your moderator for today's event. Joining me here in the studio for his second time is Major General Daniel Christian, the Deputy Chief of Staff for TRADOC. Sir, it's a pleasure to have you today. Thanks for joining us for today's discussion on diversity, inclusion, memory, and the Army's history. Hey, Sarah, thanks for welcoming me back. Uh, I always like coming to this environment. Uh, great, lively discussions about topics that are meaningful, not only to the soldiers, but also the civilians in the workforce. So I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Absolutely, and again, it's a pleasure to have you. And also joining us in the studio today is Mr. Charles Bowery, the Executive Director of the U.S. Army Center of Military History and Chief of Military History. Mr. Bowery's responsibilities include management of 57 Army museums and, <laughs> and 30 historical centers. As Chief of Military History, he supervises the education, uh, the production of historical works and studies that support the Army's development of plans, policies, doctrine, force structure, and equipment. Currently a PhD student at George Uni Washington University, Mr. Bowery is an established and trusted voice for Army history and how it shapes the Army of today. Mr. Do Bowery, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And just as a reminder, before we get started, we want, to be part we want you to be part of the discussion. So leave your comments in the section of the Facebook Live or the watch page wherever you're tuning in and we'll try to get them answered during the program. If we can't, please keep an eye on our social media pages and we'll get answers to your questions and have them posted in the near future. And with that, let's get started. Mr. Bowery, the floor is yours. Sarah, thanks a lot. It's a real pleasure to be here this morning. Major General Christian, thank you for the opportunity to participate in the TRADOC LPD series. This morning, I'd like to take the TRADOC community on a journey into the Army's experiences with diversity and inclusion, because understanding the why and how of the Army's history makes us better now and in the future. What our past tells us is that the U.S. Army has been a leader in diversity and inclusion since our beginnings as a nation, but that these achievements have not come without cost, and that the Army has endured our country's wider struggles with racism and discrimination. Moreover, there's still a lot to do. Over the next hour, we'll discuss how we construct and maintain memories of events that are distinct from, but deeply related to those events, and what historians write about them. This discussion begins with the American Civil War because that event remains a defining chapter in our nation's history for good and ill, and because we are still working out many of the war's causes and consequences in the 21st century. I'll conclude with some thoughts on the Army's struggles and achievements in the areas of diversity and inclusion since the Civil War, and we'll leave plenty of time for questions and discussions. Real historical thinking is not about memorizing things. It is critical thinking, which embraces analysis, acknowledges complexity, and avoids myth-making. Historical mindedness is the key that unlocks the diversity of the Army's people and improves our most important weapon system, the American soldier's mind and spirit. And if we could go forward to the slide on Funk's fundamentals. Four of Funk's fundamentals are really about historical mindedness. Trust but verify. We live in a world where information is everywhere and misinformation is rampant. And historical mindedness helps us to determine truth and fact. There is no such thing as a coincidence. Historical mindedness helps you answer a key question, why? Why do things happen? Training is a journey, not a destination. Thinking historically gives you perspective and context, which are precious commodities in a world that seems to be changing ever faster around us. Finally, leave the jersey in a better place than you found it. Army soldiers and civilians expect their leaders to be historically minded because these critical thinking skills and perspectives lead to better outcomes and mission accomplishment. People tend to use the past, history, and memory as interchangeable terms, when in fact they are different in important ways. Let's take a Civil War battle, Gettysburg, as an example of how we tend to think about the past in these three dimensions. First, we have the events of 1 to 3 July 1863 in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's easy to list the blow-by-blow -blow events of the battle or to depict them on a map. Once these events took place, 
they became part of the past. Historians will take these events and use them to reconstruct, evaluate, and interpret the past in books, articles, lectures, museum exhibits, and other settings. History is a production of historians. I put some statements in the thought bubble on the slide that are the types of assertions that historians make and argue about events. Finally, memory of events, whether held individually or collectively, is a construct that we in the, past, that we in the present use to make sense of the world around us. In the realms of history and memory, the past becomes a living thing, constantly changing and shifting. Revisionism is a term that is used mostly negatively in our, in our current public square, but in fact, historical work is all about revisionism. If a historian is not revising our understanding of the past and improving it, she's doing it wrong, frankly. Likewise, memory of the past is ever-changing. It may be emotional, or it may be from a particular point of view, but it is not history. Culture, art, sculpture, memorials, books, movies, drama, TV shows, also uses the past, but it is not history. The statues that line Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia are not history. They're a product of a particular set of memories of the Civil War and were constructed for specific reasons in the present of their creators. There are some examples here on this slide on the right of the ways people have used memory of the Battle of Gettysburg or of the Civil War in pursuit of objectives in the here and now. What I frequently tell people in my work at CMH is that in the U.S. Army, we frequently employ the term heritage in the Army to describe our collective memories of past actions by units or organizations in which we've served. Awareness of a unit's heritage frequently makes use of the past through tools like lineage and honors, campaign participation credit, battle streamers, heraldry, and even the insignia that soldiers wear. The products of historians, books, articles, museum exhibits, also build heritage awareness. The idea of the past in three dimensions leads us to the lost cause. The events of the Civil War are incontestable. The institution of slavery brought on the conflict, southern states seceded, the war came, and the Confederacy lost. Successive generations of historians have reconsidered the causes, conduct, and consequences of the war. The myth of the lost cause, which is a specific memory of the war designed to reinforce white supremacy and segregation, presumes that the northern and southern causes in the Civil War were morally equivalent, that secession was a constitutional right, and that slavery was not the cause of the Civil War, or the root cause of the Civil War. This idea took root in the post-war U.S. South and became the nation's dominant memory of the American Civil War until very recently, because it was useful for white Americans North and South. In the North, the lost cause was attractive because it offered a vision of reconciliation between the two sections of the country that had fought. In the South, the lost cause was a way for Southerners to cope with the defeat of their cause, and more importantly, for the course of the nation's history, the lost cause became a powerful political platform in the South after 1870 because it motivated former Confederate state governments as they deliberately rolled back civil rights for freed African Americans. And it led directly to the Jim Crow era of systemic repression and violence against those same people. But critically, the idea of reconciliation, the collective idea of reconciliation, did not include the voices of African Americans over whom the war was fought. The continued residence of the, residence of the lost cause in American popular culture informed the national struggles of the civil rights era of the 1950s through the 1970s and continues to surface in the 21st century. If you know where to look, the traces of the lost cause are visible even in the U.S. Army, where 10 current Army posts carry the names of Confederate leaders, and units in the U.S. Army are allowed to claim historical lineage to the Confederacy, complete with a different gray over blue battle streamer 
for certain campaigns in which their heritage units fought as a part of the Confederate Army. Now, a new generation of historians is reframing our understanding of this past to explain how the lost cause has been used by people since the end of the Civil War. People of color have served this nation in uniform since, we were, since before we were a nation, and for much of our history, they have fought a war on two fronts, against the nation's enemies in combat and against segregation and oppression at home. We like to tell ourselves that the U.S. Army is the ultimate meritocracy and that we only see Army green when we look at our fellow soldiers and civilians. And as a retired Army officer, I can say that with absolute conviction. It's absolutely true that in the context of America's history of racism, the Army has been one of the most inclusive and diverse of our national institutions. But now more than ever, it is critically important for all of us from the most junior basic trainee to the Secretary of the Army to understand that systemic racism has manifested itself insidiously across our ranks, and we still feel these effects today. In this context, 50, 60, or even 70 years ago is not a long time. In February 1941, Private Felix Hall, a black soldier who enlisted to serve the nation in the war, World War he saw coming, was lynched at Fort Benning, Georgia. His attackers abducted him from a white housing area on post, took him to a ravine along the Chattahoochee River, and hanged him from a tree. African Americans have served in segregated units from the Civil War to the middle of the 20th century and were more often than not forced into support roles that relied on racist ideas of their intelligence and bravery, ideas that sprang from lost cause ideology and America's long history of struggling with racism. Soldiers of color who served during the era of the World Wars endured hardship and violence at home even as they served overseas. And we have some photos here uh, of, those, of those aspects. Women served in a separate, segregated branch of the Army, the Women's Army Corps, until 1978 and served largely in medical, clerical, or service support roles. During the Vietnam War, African-American draftee soldiers served disproportionately in infantry units and suffered confinement and non-judicial punishment at much higher rates than white soldiers. As the U.S. Army implemented the all-volunteer force after Vietnam, Institutional discrimination created by things like qualification tests and recruiting, training, and education priorities continued to bar African Americans from leadership positions and combat arms military occupational specialties, traditionally the most direct paths to promotion and greater responsibility in our Army. Since President Truman's 1948 executive order desegregating the armed forces, Diversity and inclusion have steadily increased in our military ranks. But even during the Cold War, institutional obstacles remained. The opening of all MOSs to women and the end of service exclusions for LGBTQ people have allowed us to move closer to true meritocracy. As a personal example, when I was about to graduate from flight training at Fort Rucker, Alabama in 1993, Army Aviation opened service in attack and Aero Scout airframes to women. The executive officer of the battalion I commanded in Afghanistan is today the commander of one of the training brigades at Fort Rucker, and all three of her battalion commanders, as highlighted on Army.mil, are women. And I'm proud of Colonel Tammy Baugh. In the past three years, women have begun graduating from Ranger School, the Special Forces Qualification Course, and infantry and armor basic officer leader courses. In 2019, Sergeant First Class Janina Simmons, a drill sergeant at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, became the first black woman to graduate from Ranger School. A year later, our colleague Brigadier General Milford Beagle took command of the U.S. Army Training Center in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, the same post where his great-grandfather had served in a segregated labor battalion during World War II. The 2018 assignment of then Major General Gary Brito as the first ever African-American commanding general of the Maneuver Center of Excellence at Fort Benning 
followed by his promotion to lieutenant general and assignment as the Army G-1, is further evidence of the growing diversity and inclusion in our Army. The story of John Gregg, which I learned about from my colleague Major General Rodney Fogg, the CG of the Army Sustainment COE and the Combined Arms Support Command, is a great example of the Army's path toward diversity and inclusion and the power that we unlock along that path. After graduating from high school, Gregg went to Chicago, Illinois to obtain training as a medical laboratory technician. Due to segregation laws that were in place at that time, Gregg was not allowed to handle white patients, so he returned to Virginia in 1940 in the United States Army at the age of 17. The Army sent Gregg to Germany as a medical laboratory technician, but due to low demand, he transferred to the position of unit supply sergeant. After spending three and a half years in the Army, he applied and was accepted into officer candidate school and left OCS as a first lieutenant due to his excellence in that course. In 1965, Greg graduated from Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth and simultaneously obtained a Bachelor of Science from St. Benedict College. John Gregg served as an Army logistician for more than 30 years and in 1965 assumed the command of the 96th Quartermaster Direct Support Battalion in combat in South Vietnam. His battalion was awarded the Meritorious Unit Citation. After a series of joint and multinational assignments, he was promoted to Brigadier General in 1972. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter nominated Gregg for the position of Director of Logistics on the Joint Staff and approved his nomination to Lieutenant General. He went on to serve as the Army G-4 and attended the Harvard University John F. Kennedy School of Government. Since the murder of George Floyd last year, this nation has maintained an often uncomfortable conversation with itself over the continuing effects of systemic racism in our society. I'm proud that TRADOC has leaned into this conversation at all levels, and I'm extremely proud to have participated in this moment in our shared experience. Since the discovery of the murder of Vanessa Guillen at Fort Hood, Texas, the People First Task Force has been focusing on developing meaningful improvements to the Army's SHARP programs and to training our culture and improving our culture. In the coming weeks, the DOD Naming Commission will visit all of the Army posts named for Confederates, including the four posts in TRADOC, in order to carry out congressional guidance to change these names. The Commission is also working with Installation Management Command and Headquarters DA to identify other elements of Confederate iconography in such places as street and building names, unit heraldry and insignia, and unit lineages, all of which date to the Jim Crow era and are direct products of the lost cause. The concern I often hear is that the processes I've just talked about are just an erasure of our history or the new bogeyman in our culture, cancel culture. My response as a historian to these concerns is that the process of reevaluating the past and learning from it is healthy and important for a democratic society. The events of the past happened, and nothing we do in the present can change that. What can change for the better is our understanding of the past, so that our knowledge and our memories can move into closer coincidence over time, and so that history matches our memory where possible. In that spirit, I can recommend the books on the slide as further reading in the topics we've discussed this morning and that we'll continue to talk about. The TRADOC COE libraries are working to build displays of these books as well for your further reading. I've attempted to be provocative but respectful with this morning's presentation because I know that this discussion touches strongly held beliefs in all of us. But I also know from my own 28 years of service in and out of uniform that our Army's diversity is the key to our strength. And as an American, I take pride in the bravery and sacrifice of my fellow citizens who have struggled selflessly for their equality, their civil rights, and the right to serve this nation. 
As the recently departed Representative John Lewis famously said, let's continue to get into the good trouble that comes with this topic. Uh, and now, General Christian, I'd like to use the remaining time we have to go into some discussion and questions. Absolutely. Uh, we appreciate your presentation, and it's been just incredible to listen to um, the insight from your side of things and how what you do at um, the Center of Military History. Um, now, we did get a question from the audience. Um, has CMH documented the diversity of the Army throughout its history? Um, and if you have, where can individuals um, access that to kind of see that, that broadening of diversity in the force? Sure, and I would, <clears throat> I would go back to the Cold War era, and there were two. Uh, there were there was one publication on the slide I showed on the further reading slide. Uh, that's a book we published back in the '90s called Black Soldier, White Army, and it talks about the experiences of a segregated infantry regiment, the 24th Infantry Regiment, uh, in the Korean War. Uh, but going back before that, uh, we published some works on the Army's experience with African American soldiers in World War II. Uh, and then also there are DOD historical publications uh, about the path to integration of the armed forces. Uh, and we uh, and the Army University Press at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, continue to collect personal experiences and recollections uh, of currently serving soldiers and their path to diversity. So I would say within the Army's official publishing programs, there's quite a lot of material uh, on the topic. Excellent. Great. And we appreciate you sharing those continued reading ideas with our audience because I know um, everyone always wants to continue these discussions. Those are great jumping off points for leaders who may want to read those and then take them back to their units. So we appreciate that. Um, one of the, the questions that we have is how does teaching and understanding military history play into training? Do you think it needs to be a deliberate add to a training regiment? And how does that add to a training regiment that is more physically demanding or physically necessary? How does that play into um, the readiness piece of the Army? Absolutely. Uh, what, I, what I tell uh, Army leaders and commanders all the time is that historical mindedness builds resilience in our soldiers and our units. Uh, and that's a, that's a conscious decision to levy that history to, uh, to improve unit esprit de corps, unit morale, heritage awareness, but then also critical thinking skills that leaders employ. And so I've just said a lot of things about the value of history, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to say that the Army takes history seriously in its educational and training base already. For example, uh, when a new basic trainee arrives at a basic training center at Fort Jackson or Fort Benning or Fort Sill, uh, they're inculcated in their history from the very beginning in things like the Soldier's Blue Book, which they receive, which contains training standards. But even the title of the publication, the Blue Book, uh, is based on Baron von Steuben's training manual that he used for the Continental Army at Valley Forge. And so there are already very deep instinctual ties back to our history just in the things that soldiers handle from the very early days. And then in our various NCO and officer training courses, uh, the Army employs lots of history instructors who do a great and very passionate job of, of relaying the Army's past, not only in the sense of building resiliency, but then also building, uh, building critical thinking skills. Um, what I would say, though, in, in an area of, of ways for the Army to get better is that although we do a great job of using history in the training and education base, our operating forces uh, tend uh, to be challenged in that regard because uh, an Army unit and commanders are focused on the here and now. They're focused on the mission. They're focused on risk. They're focused on their next deployment, their next challenge, equipping, manning, and, and training, and, and keeping the forces' readiness up. Uh, and, it can be, and it can seem counterintuitive to take time in that environment to take a step back and actually use history in training. And that's what we're working hard on with uh, the operating forces, with Forces Command, to, uh, to create uh, effective ways that unit commanders and leaders can use history in an operational environment as well. So Charles, I'm gonna kind of tease on that thread a little bit if I could, right? So do you have some examples in the operational force and how history would inform either the type of training they're doing uh, but also including some of the topics we've talked today. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, we're developing 
we're in the process of developing now a couple of specific products that we will provide to the operating forces to help them build historical awareness. Uh, one I'm really proud of that is generated by our museum's uh, enterprise uh, is a program called Gear Faith. And we are developing, uh, for lack of a better term, some reproduction elements of historical kit through time that we can position with our museums and that we can sign out, in effect, to units. So, for example, when a unit is conducting sergeant's time training or they're conducting an OPD or an NCOPD, our museum professionals can go to that unit and they can use, for example, we've done uh, at JBLM, at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, we've done recent iterations of the training that involved soldier footwear. Uh, or soldier headgear or soldier protective gear and we show them historical examples of the kit through time to show them not only that their kit is intentionally designed to protect and aid them in their mission but that that kit has a heritage and so we can tell stories about moments in the past when that gear was or was not successful in its mission of protecting or aiding a soldier but then we also tie this back to the Army's current suggestion programs where soldiers can provide input, to, for example, to PEO soldier on the design of current uniforms and equipment. So that's, that's one example. What we're also doing is developing specific unit-based heritage products. So for example, uh, in the 101st Airborne Division, we will develop products that highlight specific events in the past of those units, the division and its subordinate units, that again, those units can use for organizational days. They can use for OPDs. They can use for specific training events that delve into elements of tactical training. And we can create examples and vignettes from the past, from the unit's past, that directly tie to the unit's current training tasks. So in the area of diversity and inclusion, what we're also working on in our museum's directorate, and I'll give a shout out uh, to Ms. Tracy Bradford, who's the director of the Army Women's Museum at Fort Lee, Virginia. Tracy is developing a training module for use throughout the Army on the integration of women into combat arms MOS's after 9-11. So in the modularity era uh, during the GWAT, the Global War on Terrorism, we began to open all of these MOS's to women and Tracy has assembled a training support package that will give leaders the ability to have a conversation with their formations about the Army's successes and challenges in integrating women into these MOS's. So I think we've got a lot of products now and under development to aid the force to do this. Hey, I wanted to kind of go in a little bit different direction. So as we're bringing new soldiers in, you know, the Z generation, General Funk has talked often about that, they probably don't have an appreciation for what's happened 20 years prior, 30 years prior, right? Do you see value in spending time with, my son is a good example, right? Just joined the Army, 25 years old, didn't understand what Vietnam was all about and the segregation that occurred. Do you see the value in that? And if so, could you just expand on that a little bit? I do. And as we have, as TRADOC leaders, have had conversations about what drives uh, a young American's propensity to serve in the Army, what we have learned is that these young Americans want to serve something bigger than themselves. Uh, they're seeking a cause higher than themselves. Uh, and there is no greater cause than serving your nation in uniform and as the Army, or as the nation's oldest military service, I believe we would be missing an immense opportunity not to use that history and expose these young people to that history. Because I go back to the, again, to the concept of resiliency. That, that uh, serving in the Army appears to a teenager to be a massive challenge. I don't know if I can do that. Well, what we do by showing them examples of how Americans of all backgrounds have served throughout our history is that people just like you have done this and they've succeeded, they've endured pain, fear, stress, hunger, sleeplessness, worry, uncertainty, uh, and they've come through. And by, by packaging our history, for, which sounds like a very sort of mercenary term, but by by exposing young people to our history in effective ways, we can do that. And so uh, uh, what I tell people is that uh, the Army has the What's Your Warrior campaign, which drives a lot of our recruiting efforts right now. Uh, I would develop an adjunct to that that's What's Your Historical Warrior and the ability to find these, these case studies in our past. Great, thanks. We appreciate that. And um, 
kind of building off of that, TRADOC owns the recruiting piece and the basic training piece of, of the Army. So can you provide some examples of how you think TRADOC is really driving a cultural change by including history in, in some of those trainings? You mentioned some of the great products that your team is working on, but are there anything that you know of within the actual training that TRADOC is leading the way in for this cultural change to introduce history? We are working hard with the, the commanders of the, the basic training centers and the Center for, Mil for Initial Military Training to just try to continue to drive incremental improvement in their historical product, if you will. Uh, and I'll offer uh, a superb example on, on my recent visit down to Brigadier General Beagle at Fort Jackson. Uh, I got a chance to walk the last 10-mile road march and participate in the, uh, in the beret donning ceremony at Fort Jackson. And uh, that ceremony brought tears to my eyes as I stood there because what they do in that ceremony is that uh, as the drill sergeants uh, hand uh, the, the new soldiers their berets, they don them, they put the Army patch on, they are narrating the Army's past through the placement of their, their battle streamers onto the Army colors there at the beginning. And it's an incredibly powerful moment that I believe sort of in a multimedia social driven age, we should be looking for ways to take what is already a really meaningful moment and generate ways to expose people who might be making the, the decision to sign up for that, uh, to watch this and to see it happen, but then also to relate it into meaningful ways to our history. We're also developing a product for our recruiters to use that takes iconic moments in, in the Army's history uh, and turns them into presentations that drill sergeants and recruiters can use during down periods, for example, during the delayed entry program, where they can use to continue to build heritage awareness uh, and soldier and new trainee resiliency. And the first one we're doing uh, is going to be about the Battle of Yorktown. And it's going to talk about a place right down the road from Fort Eustis at Yorktown, you know, where the nation was born in combat uh, and where citizen soldiers served uh, in meaningful and iconic moments in our past, but then also take some elements of, of artifacts from our museum programs that we already have on hand in the Army uh, and show them some examples of artifacts that, that, that are provenanced to that space and to talk about how those artifacts, for example, how a musket fired by a Continental soldier at Yorktown relates to the M4 rifle that, uh, that a soldier will train on in basic training and qualify on. It's so interesting how your team continues to come up with these very unique products to get them out to these units, out to these young individuals to just inspire their continued service. So we really appreciate all the hard work that your team continues to do for that. Um, I do have a question. You've, you've shared some really great examples of those trailblazing individuals who have really been the first in Army history. How does the Army need to continue to improve to make those stories more commonplace in our history? How do we, trailblazers are always amazing, it means we're growing, we're improving, but how do we make some of those, what we would assume is just everyday, like women serving in combat arms, how do we make those everyday stories that we can share? I would, I would say for, the, as, a, as a team member of TRADOC now, that uh, one of the things that consistently impresses me uh, is the nature of the command's communications to the Army about, uh, about the Army's people. So I, I think we're on a, a really tremendous path to continue highlighting that diversity. Uh, I will make a, just an unpaid uh, plug, though, for the DOD Naming Commission uh, and the effort to rename these, these Army posts. And I'll give a great example uh, right down the road here at Fort Lee, Virginia, which trains the Army's sustainers, uh, its ordnance professionals, uh, and is really, uh, as we know, uh, uh, a linchpin of the Army's success in any environment is our logistics uh, base and our sustainment base. That post uh, is named for a Confederate general, Robert E. Lee. Uh, as we supported the DOD Naming Commission, uh, and I indicated an example in my, in my talk from General Fogg, what we uncovered were literally dozens of stories of African-American men and women who, uh, Hispanic men and women, who uh, would be considered, as, in your words, as ordinary soldiers, who didn't really do anything exceptional. They didn't win a decoration for valor. Uh, but many of them did uh, earn decorations for valor, uh, and they are sustainment soldiers. Uh, one of the examples that we offered to the DOD Naming Commission uh, was a black soldier who enlisted in the Quartermaster Corps for service in World War II, 
shipped out to the Pacific Theater of Operations late in the war uh, and perished when his troop ship was torpedoed, but he gave his life by, by retrieving life jackets for other soldiers in the water as his troop ship sank, and he gave up his own life jacket to another soldier, and he perished. This was a quartermaster soldier. Uh, I would submit that uh, the, the larger effort to rename these posts and the ways in which it capitalizes on the diversity of the Army's valor and experience is a real moment. So that a new trainee or a new AIT soldier, for example, uh, in a sustainment branch that goes through the gate at Fort Lee, Virginia, will see a post that highlights, through the name of that post, uh, one of these great stories from the cohort of soldiers with which they will serve. And we have opportunities to do that all around uh, the force, and I know that all of our commanders in TRADOC uh, are invested in this, uh, and they're ready to support the commission when it comes. So I think what we can do is continue to build on what TRADOC is already doing to message the diversity of our force, but then uh, look for innovative ways, uh, primarily through social media, I think. It's, a, it's an incredible tool when properly used, uh, and we see examples of this. Uh, Mill Twitter is one of the most vibrant sectors of Twitter, and we know our very own Lieutenant General Ted Martin is a social media superstar in that area, and he is an example of what right looks like that. Uh, we've got other examples in the TRADOC leadership, Major Donald Donahoe uh, at Fort Benning, uh, another one, uh, General Beagle. Uh, they continue to do incredible work to uh, highlight the diversity of the force and use our history. Excellent. We appreciate that. And we do actually have a question from our audience. Um, at, uh, the Army birthday was just a couple of days ago, and we celebrated with opening Namusa again. Um, as soon as it opened, unfortunately, the global pandemic hit, and we had to, for safety reasons, close its doors. But you guys have been doing great virtual events, but it's now open again. Um, and so what are some of the must-see exhibits that will demonstrate the Army's diversity within um, the National Museum of the United States Army? I wonder if that question was planted by one of our teammates uh, in the Namusa staff. But in any case, I, I really thank the, the, the questioner for asking that because it's a great highlight. And even right now as we speak, I believe the Today Show is wrapping up yeah. a live broadcast <laughs> from the Namusa campus, and they had the Golden Knights jump in this morning. So uh, it is great. I hope people can get out to the National Museum. But I would highlight in terms of diversity uh, a couple of different spaces uh, in the museum. Uh, when you go into the Experiential Learning Center, uh, at the, at the, in the, uh, right off the entrance, the main entrance to the, uh, to the museum, uh, you see a multimedia display, an interactive called Growing Up Army, that talks about, and it talks about stories of individuals who've been Army brats, Army spouses. Uh, so it's a great way to highlight the fact that the Army is more than just soldiers. It's the families and communities that surround us. Uh, the soldier story pylons that march into the museum in formation and form up in the lobby uh, are incredibly diverse. Uh, and they tell stories uh, of all of our soldiers throughout our history. Uh, great examples uh, that, that, that really cover the scope of the Army's diversity and service. In the Army and Society Gallery, uh, we talk about the ways in which society and the Army have a synergistic effect to one another. Uh, there are some, a series of interactives called My Fellow Americans that take currently serving Army soldiers and they display not only their, their uniform, their, their military accomplishments, but then also their civilian lives, what they do in their communities. Uh, we also highlight uh, the service of, uh, of veteran support organizations. Uh, and then throughout the armies, uh, or throughout the historical galleries, uh, in the chronological galleries in the, uh, in the museum space, we highlight women soldiers. So for example, uh, in, the, uh, in the World War II gallery, we have a, a cast figure uh, of uh, a Women's Army Corps NCO who works in a headquarters as an intelligence NCO. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Cold War gallery in the Vietnam section, uh, we have an Army nurse, uh, one of my favorite exhibits, uh, just because of her, uh, the, the way the, uh, the, the cast figure is built and the little details of it, like she's got a Detroit Lions sticker on her clipboard because she's clearly a Detroit Lions fan. Uh, and then she's got Woodstock on her uh, on her uh, on her clipboard as well. So, but I love the uh, I love the personalization of it, and the uh, the degree to which the museum's displays highlight that this diversity has always been a part of our force. 
So Charles, I got a question. So if I'm an incoming company commander, captain type one each coming into a unit uh, and, and wanting to really embrace diversity, but also in balance with readiness, right? Because that is a, a metric for success. What advice would you give me as a company commander? As I have watched what TRADOC and the Army have tried to do with the People First Task Force, <clears throat> what, what strikes me is that for all the right reasons, the Army has continued to open all of its paths and opportunities for service uh, to women uh, and to, uh, to soldiers of, of different ethnic backgrounds and to make it a fair and welcoming place. But changing the policy in many respects is the easy part. Changing the culture in our formations is immensely difficult. And I think that's what we saw at Fort Hood and we see it other places. And so what you have to do is have leaders who understand that they drive that cultural change. And so that's what I would remind a young company commander is that you own the culture in your formation uh, and it will do and live uh, as you are involved and as you model. And so you've got to not only follow policy and regulations with regard to how you handle complaints, how you handle sharp issues, for example, knowing your resources, getting those resources to your soldiers, you've got to be very proactive and reactive when situations arise. But then you've got to work on the culture in advance. So we'd say in an IED environment, getting left of the boom, right? You want to get, you want to solve the issue before the IED explodes. You want to get left of that boom in your unit's culture by making it a safe, inclusive place where you apply standards and you work toward your mission accomplishment, but you, that you take into account the diversity of backgrounds that your soldiers bring. So that, that would be my advice. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. So one of my other sons came to me when he was taking command and asked me that very question. And uh, you know, here's the advice I gave him. And I think I think it's kind of simple, uh, but I think it holds true. Uh, one is the culture you create is the culture you own, right? And I think the only way you change that culture is really getting face to face, what I like to say, knee to knee, toe to toe, yes. with your soldiers to really understand what makes them tick, right? Yes. What are they really interested in? That's one. Two. This is a people business, right? And so this is all about people. So if you don't invest in time in people to let them know how much you care for them, what you're willing to do for them, and your word is your bond always, right? Then you're gonna create the culture that you may say all the right things, yes. but you're not effectively doing the right things. That's right. So I just thought it was an interesting question to get your perspective yeah. on that. But but I would say going back to my uh, my my home as a, as a history nerd, <laughs> Uh, I think that, uh, that a commander's historical mindedness on a certain level uh, can make that process more effective. Sure. Because I think uh, a, a leader who is historically minded will understand implicitly, as you said, that those soldiers come with different backgrounds and experiences, and their ability to be open to those backgrounds is a product of historical mindedness because you value and understand, as I say, that everything has a history and that the soldiers that you command come in with their own history uh, and it's informed in critical ways by their experiences. And so a leader's ability to understand those experiences out in the larger society and also in the army uh, will help them do that. Yeah, that's Absolutely. great, thank and, you. And be authentic and empathetic, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely, and we all know that the army is really trying to tackle this, this big bear that is changing culture yes. to make it more um, diverse and more open and more transparent just so in the cohesive teams it's always that's a big topic right now too so I would actually like to open it up to both of you so how how do you feel that being diverse is going to make us a stronger a stronger army like why why is that so important you both have kind of touched about people bringing in different experiences in history so why is being a diverse army so important to making us stronger yeah so I'll take a Crack at it from an operational perspective. Uh, I am slowly becoming uh, a historian, but not to your to your <laughs> talent for sure, Charles. Hey, look. So we all come from different different backgrounds, different experiences. Uh, we all have different views in the world, right? Uh, we all have something to offer, and I think that's really the most important part. Appreciating the differences between individuals is also is as important as appreciating the likenesses between individuals, you know. Yes. We all argue often in the Army that it is about completing the mission. Um, I don't think that diversity comes at the risk of not completing the mission. I believe they're actually both complementary, right? 
you'll see in a lot of the uh, social media today, hey, we talk a lot about diversity, we're not really focusing on readiness. Well, they're complementary efforts. They're That's not mutually exclusive, exactly. right? A plus B equals C. So I think the diversity makes us stronger, makes us better. Uh, but as I said earlier, when I was talking to my son, understanding what makes soldiers tick is hugely important. Whether you are a, uh, parallel to the soldier to your left or your right, or you're an officer or a senior NCO in a leadership position, that is what's gonna help us accomplish the mission. Charles, what are your thoughts? I Dan, I could not agree more. Uh, I think that uh, that when our soldiers see that the army in which they serve uh, truly understands and values the differences, as well as the similarities and the shared purpose, those individuals, every one of those soldiers, will be more effective at their job. They're going to be more energized. They're going to be more passionate because they know that they serve in an institution that values them uh, at, a, at a very, very basic level. But then they also see that their senior leaders uh, are modeling that diverse behavior. Uh, and that is just, the, the cost of not doing it is a literal decline in readiness because those individuals on a very, uh, on a very emotional, personal level will be less capable. They're gonna be less inspired to serve uh, and at some point, they're going to probably make a decision to go somewhere else where their talents are valued and their backgrounds are valued. And so, uh, uh, and, and again, speaking for the product that we offer the Army, what we offer them is the ability uh, not to whitewash our past in terms of applying sort of a construct like the lost cause that, that explicitly disregards particular aspects of our past. Approaching the Army's history from that perspective would lead us, for example, only to really talk about, for example, uh, the Army's combat performance, the performance of combat armed soldiers in battles. While those are the iconic moments that really have a name and they have a resonance uh, on our battle streamers, in our past, uh, in the names of many places, uh, an inability to understand the entire scope of the Army's past in a diverse way means that significant portions of the Army who don't serve in those OMSs feel that their past doesn't matter. And we've got to continue demonstrating and showing uh, our soldiers who serve in CSS branches, in the Quartermaster Corps, in ordnance, our, our medical professionals, uh, uh, military policemen and women. All of those uh, branches and backgrounds have past. They have great history. They have great achievement. And so you can inject diversity into those programs just as you do training, uh, and I agree, uh, General Christian, that uh, the result is additive in nature. Excellent. And we appreciate you all, both of you, everyone's feedback from an operational side of things and then more from your perspective in the historian's realm. Um, I think I just have one, maybe one more question for you guys. How, how does the Army continue to move forward? What are some of the biggest lessons learned, maybe in the last decade, um, with some of those big headlines? negative headlines that have come through, the renamings, Vanessa Guillen. How, what are some of those biggest lessons learned that the Army can put into place and really start shaping its culture and moving its cultures yeah. with those kind of dings on its history? Uh, and again, from my perspective, uh, the Army is extremely effective, this, uh, effective at this and getting more effective because they are, the Army is demonstrating transparency at every level of its leadership. Uh, and it's also demonstrating through really things like this LPD series uh, that we are truly a learning organization and that we value experience, not just good experience, but uh, all experience. Uh, and I, I saw that there was a, a question uh, from the audience that uh, has there been, been any thought given to uh, creating an additional duty position of history, historian positions in unit staffs to, to try to build this historical awareness. And that's absolutely a program that we've got underway now, the Unit Historical Officer Program, which will be an additional duty officer or NCO that helps commanders gather the unit's past in a historical file format and make it usable for the future. Uh, but, but at an institutional level, at a big army level, uh, I think we, we keep going as we are, uh, and that way is being open to the past, being respectful of it, uh, but then also embracing all aspects uh, in an effort to, uh, again, show that we're a learning organization. Absolutely, and I think it's this has just been a really eye-opening experience for me, and it's just 
it seems like we're moving forward in a really great pace and a really great fashion to really celebrate each and every individual that chooses to serve with um, with you, sir, and uh, you as a veteran of the Army. Um, I'm sure you both have seen the incredible knowledge, skills, and abilities that come from each of those soldiers that serves right next to you. Um, so we just really appreciate this conversation that you guys have brought to us today. Um, and I just want to be sure that everyone understands that the Army is going to continue to make these deliberate steps towards being more inclusive and, and ready to go. So um, I think, honestly, I just want to, what are some of the, what are some of the steps that you guys think um, TRADOC can continue to integrate into training and everyday, like you said, the need to need conversations? How do we encourage that continued service through these history lessons and things? It's always a struggle, uh, and I, from my perspective again, uh, watching the TRADOC enterprise work. Uh, it's a tremendously uh, large and complex organization with a core mission for the Army, uh, and there's no white space. So uh, every, when we make changes to training and education programs, uh, there's always uh, a give and take. Uh, and there's a risk and value discussion. Uh, and, uh, and I'm mindful that, uh, that we can't just come in uh, as a gorilla in the room and begin to just to throw things on top of already constrained training schedules and resources. So it's important to be, uh, be cost-minded uh, and effectiveness-minded in what we do and to manage our own expectations with that, but to seek ways to improve already existing programs uh, where possible. Uh, but, uh, uh, but again, just to drive a basic level of historical mindedness. And the example I use is for our comrades in the Marine Corps, usually when I talk to soldiers about Army history, is that when you meet anyone who served in the Marine Corps uh, in any context, at any time, they'll be able to tell you some things about Marine Corps history, uh, some things that are important to them. It's a corporate mentality that I think sometimes because of the, the large size and diversity of the Army that we struggle with a little bit. Uh, and one of my goals is to drive that greater basic level awareness of, of our shared past of valor and service to the nation. So I just want to touch on that if I could. So, you know, TRADOC is in a very fortunate position where we touch the soldier, future soldiers from the moment they come in uniform and then we'll get them through throughout their career, both on the NCO and the officer side, right? And so you talked about the corporate mentality. I love that terminology. I think we have an opportunity to stitch the narrative across yes. all those NCOs and officers so that we yeah. groom and grow their understanding of history, right? Uh, so here I am, 58 years old, in a history belt of the United States trying to understand the history, right? And I absolutely love it. I'm not sure that we've stitched all that together in a way that's yes. meaningful for the captains, the majors, the lieutenant colonels, to have a lens into, hey, what are we teaching the privates, if you will, right? What are we teaching our E5s, E6s, and their respective NCOES? And by the way, conversely, what are they learning? Yeah. And so we've we could we could create a community of shared interest and understanding from a historical perspective, relating to the specific topics we're talking about here, but also related to kind of the operational force. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, Absolutely. you know, we talked about named, um, combat uh, uh, efforts that have happened in the past, there is much to learn there, right? Yes. So I think that's uh, something I would offer up. I think TRADOC has an opportunity, given the space and time we have, because like everything else, we're challenged with time, resources, and those types of things. I think we could relook at that and ask ourselves, how could we do it differently? If we could reimagine it, what would it look like? Yes, agree. Absolutely. Well, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. You guys are, have both brought some incredible insight into to what we're doing. So I just want to thank you, Mr. Bowery and General Christian, for the great discussion today. It's truly been eye-opening to hear how important these intense and thorough looks at the Army history can create a force that is truly more capable and ready than ever. Uh, Mr. Bowery, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we sign off today? No, I just would encourage you to continue to read about our past. Uh, Again, I can't recommend highly enough the books that I displayed uh, at the end of the, of the discussion. There are many more out there, but uh, just pick up some history and read it. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, thank you again for joining us. We love having people back in the studio with us. It definitely <laughs> adds to a more friendly yeah. uh, table conversation. We love Absolutely. that, um, so thank you for joining us. Uh, General Krishna, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience today? 
No, so look, it's always great to be back here, right? Uh, and I learned a few things, so I now have some more books to add to my Kindle reading. So thank you, Charles. <laughs> I'll try to get to them. Great dialogue. I think really what I would leave you with is tough conversation, but it's a conversation we have, have to have, right? So we talked about good trouble, I think is a term you used out of a quote earlier. And thank you, sir. Uh, the Army's history is our history and must be understood to continue to answer the nation's call with the pride that we talked about today. I want to thank everyone who tuned in today. Uh, and as you know, the Army has really been focusing on highlighting its diversity through, the variety of, through a variety of outlets that Mr. Bowery actually shared with us today. And we must continue to study and understand that history in order to continue to make strides toward building an even more diverse and inclusive force. The Army is only as successful as each individual who wears the uniform. We must continue to look into our past to be able to better support and understand each individual and the value that they bring and how they are essential to the overall mission. And I also want to um, introduce our next topic. So please join General Funk, Commanding General of TRADOC, and myself July 15th at 11 a.m. Eastern for our special on location LPD, <laughs> titled Bridging Generations Leading Gen Z in the Future Army. Jason Dorsey, president of the Center for Gen Generational Kinetics will be our guest speaker. Um, and we're super excited about that conversation. We kind of touched on it today. So we hope everyone will join us again in July. And remember, victory starts here.